Report on housing takes aim at foreign buyers. Also, our regular guest, Todd Talbot, with Real Estate Commissions and his take on that. John, what are the big five stories we're talking about on Vancouver Real Estate today? Well, Ian, uh, good morning. The big real estate news story this week, the announcement of new rules to protect property sellers from predatory conduct in BC's real estate market. Finance Minister Mike DeYoung saying this week the new rules will require real estate agents to have the seller's consent to transfer a property sale contract. And uh, new real estate... uh, Sellers in the the real estate market and uh, hopefully address in part some of the concerns that we've heard about uh, conduct on the part of some realtors in what has obviously been a very uh, active market. The new real estate contract rules to protect sellers are coming into effect in May 16th. The contract must not be assigned without the seller's written consent and the seller is entitled to any profit uh, resulting from assignment of the, uh, the contract by the buyer or any subsequent assignee. DeYoung says the government's also amending property transfer tax forms in order to collect data about the country of origin of people who buy real estate here in BC. Vancouver realtor Aaron Jasper says the changes won't cool down the real estate market. I don't think it's going to address the overall affordability crisis that we're, we're talking about here in Metro Vancouver. For some, it's about time. We spoke to a victim of shadow flipping, a scheme that happened, who says it's been going on for years. 60-year-old Jim Davis says he was convinced to sell his mom's home after she passed away for below market value before the original buyer reassigned the contract before the deal closed for a profit. Now the seller must give consent to transfer the contract and will reap any profits from it. I think that's a good idea. I mean, there's always going to be, have to be a clause in there to assign it if, for extenuating circumstances, like the finances doesn't go through. To say, well, I couldn't get my financing, I'm going to resell it. Hey, I'm going to make another 100000 That sounds a bit fishy. I agree that that money then should go back, the difference should go back to uh, the original seller. The city of Vancouver has intervened after a demolition permit was requested for a Tudor-style home on the city's west side. A heritage inspection has now been ordered for the property, which was listed for $7.4 million, but has since been taken off the market. So, Ian, heritage inspections are a new tool. The city's using this to protect heritage and character properties in the city. It's part of their uh, heritage procedure bylaw that was passed back in September. You likely remember that. This is the first to be ordered. So the inspection will evaluate the home's heritage value and character to see whether or not it merits heritage conservation. The house is on West 29th. It was designed by the same architects who designed City Hall. So while the inspection is taking place, the home is subject to temporary heritage protection and can't be demolished like there was plans for, altered or damaged. Uh, this was out this week, uh, not really surprising, but Vancouver millennials have the least purchasing power in Canada. Uh, This is according to the latest report from Van City Financial. Spokesperson William Azroff says high shelter costs and lower incomes could mean going into debt for a basic lifestyle. Discretionary income is the money that you might spend going on a trip. That's the money you might save for a rainy day to give yourself a sense of security or you save for retirement. Or it's the money you might use to invest in community and being philanthropic in those areas that are meaningful to you. And and so millennials in our area are going to have a harder time building that well-being than than other generations. The report found a millennial couple that buys a property at an average price in Vancouver will go into debt by $2,745 per year. 
The report says those aged 25 to 34 may need to reconsider home ownership. I am. It also recommends dramatically increasing support for rental housing. While move over economy, Ian, a new poll says BC's red hot real estate market is now on top of voters' minds. The Insight West Business in Vancouver poll shows 22% of British Columbians see housing, poverty, and homelessness as the number one issue eclipsing the economy at 20%. Insight's West VP Mario Conseco says it's the first time in three years the issue has topped the chart and signals possible storm clouds for the B.C. Liberals in next year's election. It's really a matter of establishing that emotional connection with the voters. They did very well in the last election, and they do very well when it comes to economic matters. But when it's something that is hitting you closer to home, the answer cannot be economic growth or billions of dollars in revenue for the government. It's ultimately something that the people can hold on to. Conseco says Metro Vancouver voters, along with millennials and young families locked out of the housing market, are driving the numbers. This is, to me, one of the most interesting stories from the week, uh, one that uh, CKW Simon Little did. And Ian, essentially a, a renovated SRO, so a short-term rental, a building in Vancouver's Strathcona neighborhood that uh, raised eyebrows for advertising pricey, trendy rooms has housing advocates very upset. It's because only three of its protected suites went to low-income people. So the city of Vancouver says two units at 406 Union were filled at the agreed welfare rate of $375 a month, but admits only one of six units meant for people on housing subsidies were filled by them. It turns out, even with the supplement, no one could afford the $900 rent. Gene Swanson with the Carnegie Community Action Project says it highlights a new growing problem in Vancouver. So it shows two things. One, the rent supplements aren't adequate to solve the housing problem. And two, that the city's housing agreement policy is not helping low-income people. The city, Ian, says it can't force landlords to lower rents and that rental subsidies need to go up. Swanson says it proves the need for government to take control of low-income rental housing. Those are some of the stories that made real estate headlines this week. What about that house? Was it on Belmont? That sold, it was $31.1 million, and it was registered to an 18-year-old kid. Oh, really? Yeah. And 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 this is a true story. There, or there was, I think it's one or maybe even as much as 10% ownership was under another name. An 18 or 19-year-old student yeah. in a $31.1 million <laughs> house on Belmont. And, and I was just told, Craig Thelner from Rock 101 down mm-hmm. the hall just told me that he went by the house and like any other 18 or 19-year-old student, inside the garage, a 1994 Honda Accord. <laughs> you got to love it. Nice frat house. I don't even know if that's true. Uh, coming up next, John, uh, an SFU report on housing that takes aim at foreign buyers on Vancouver Real Estate Today from News Talk 980 CKNW. A Simon Fraser University professor says foreign buyers are behind B.C.'s housing woes. The governments aren't doing enough to protect residents. Josh Gordon from SFU's School of Public Policy says people's dreams of owning a home are being crushed because they can't compete with buyers from China and beyond. Gordon's report, titled Vancouver Housing Affordability, Crisis, Causes, Consequences and Conclusions, says political inaction has allowed the problem to grow. And uh, Mr. Gordon joins us on the phone right now. Thank you for being with us. Hi, how are you doing? Excellent, thank you. 
Uh, Josh, John Meyer here. Um, you know, we we read this report. Uh, we we read the comments online. Um, we we've talked to you here at CKNW, and uh, I'm just curious as to the reaction you've got outside of our radio world here uh, to this report. And, and I ask that because I think it's for some uh, a refreshing report saying, let's call the problem really what it is. How, how, can you, I guess, describe some of the reaction you've had outside of of uh, our world here? Yeah, the, the reaction has been quite positive uh, in terms of the emails I get, um, in terms of the comments online, generally speaking, um, that kind of a thing. Uh, you know, uh, other academics have, have commended the report and so on. Um, the, uh, the provincial government hasn't been as warm to it. That's, um, that was predictable. Um, but uh, generally speaking, it's been quite positive. Uh, the, the report got a lot more traction than I, than I ever thought it would. Uh, in the report, you make a, a a point of saying, you know, it's not because it's Chinese money. It could be any kind of money, but that's what it is. Yeah. It, so there, there's there's no use singling any uh, type of foreign money out. That's not the purpose of the exercise. The the reason why I talk about um, the money from China um, and why it's emphasized is uh, first of all because that's where most of the money is coming from, and that's we can kind of piece that together through various means. Um, and and just in order to build a case in the absence of government data, uh, that's what we must do. Um, it's not because there's anything particularly wrong with it. It's simply we need to um, look at the specific source in order to build a convincing case for how it's impacting the market. And and that was the, the kind of... Um, main ambition of the of the paper. So well, I'd like to know, Josh, uh, how reliable is the data that you used? And, and, and to follow that up, sure. how is the foreign money tracked? Yeah, um, well, so you got to kind of uh, piece it together in various ways. Uh, some people have referred to it as kind of anecdotal. I, I would contest that. Uh, in fact, uh, the report doesn't rely on anecdotal evidence, I wouldn't say. Uh, the, the studies that are that are within it that are referenced there are quite carefully done. Um, it's uh, we have, for example, a fairly clear evaluation um, from the federal government and from uh, the research by David Lay and others on the business immigrant program about where the people who came into the country um, uh, came from, um, how much money was brought over, what kind of business or lack thereof was engaged in once they arrived, um, things of those sorts. And, and that allows us to essentially see that, uh, you know, the, the people who came in and bought houses that were quite expensive and high, had high housing spending um, were not doing so on the basis of local labor income. And that means that essentially the money has to be flowing in from somewhere else. And we, you know, it's just, this is just uh, inevitably, that that's a two plus two equals four type of conclusion, and so on that basis, we can we can kind of infer that there's a lot of money coming into the region, and that's carefully done um, by some other researchers through census data, and so you know, this is not anecdote. This is this is fairly careful studies of these issues in the absence of kind of specific tracking of the money. We can kind of infer through a, a variety of means exactly. Uh, how much, or a, a fair bit of how much the money is coming in, and and where it's coming from. 
And Josh, just to to piggyback on that, uh, a new report out by Royal LePage says that uh, Grand, uh, Greater Vancouver luxury property market leads the country with a 10-year price increase of 125%. Uh, what stuck out in this, regional manager Alan Stewart saying that uh, their report found foreign buyers are a significant factor driving price increases. He says there is no question that we're seeing a lot of investment from offshore buyers and also buyers from the U.S. And uh, he talked a lot about the Canadian dollar having a dramatic effect on that. Yes. And this is all consistent with what was said in the report. So, I mean, essentially every day you have uh, stories that are corroborating what I, what I said. Uh, this has been known for some time. McDonald Realty also had a study that they put out or kind of a, a report that they put out uh, last year where they talked about uh, the dominance of uh, buyers from mainland China in the high-end segments. Um, you have NDN study. And so, you know, just the consistent picture is one of a huge role played by foreign money, especially at the top end, uh, increasingly at lower ends because of the, the massive flow of money that's happened in the past year. And we know that this will have ripple effects, cascading price effects uh, out to other regions. And sure enough, that's what we've seen. Where's the foreign money being spent? Is it just the west side of Vancouver, Richmond, West Vancouver? And and, I, and the follow-up to that, to, is, if I can get that in, is what do you say to somebody who says that this study you've just done mm-hmm. is racist? Okay, so those are two different questions. So uh, first of all, um, in terms of where the, where the money has been, has been spent, uh, you know, uh, I think historically... Yes, it was mostly on the west side, uh, Richmond, West Van, to an extent. Um, I think it's now uh, more widespread. Uh, again, we don't have great data on this, but uh, anecdotally, you know, talking to some real estate agents and so on, uh, there's a pretty good sense of that into North Van, uh, Burnaby, and so on. Um, in terms of the other issue, you know, again, I've, I've sort of addressed that. that. That's not what this is about. This is about uh, simply piecing together the, the case and making it clear that foreign money is playing a big role and the impact that that foreign money is having on the market, on affordability, on debt levels, on communities, etc. And, and that's the nature of the argument. This has nothing to do with racism. Did this situation that we face now begin in the 1980s? Is this something that we should have anticipated, this so-called crisis we're facing now? Yeah, uh, it, it did start back in the 1980s. Uh, I don't think it would have been anticipated at that point uh, for, for two reasons. First of all, I think the initial ambition with a lot of these programs that brought in this money was that, in fact, it was going to be invested in the local community, and so it was going to create a lot of um, businesses and high-paying jobs and so on. And so I don't think we would have nearly the crisis that we have had that occurred. Um, but secondarily, I don't think anybody really would have foreseen um, just how powerful um, China in particular has become in you know, the world stage and how much money would have come over in the last few years. I think that that has taken everybody by surprise. Um, and so you know, I don't think it's predictable necessarily that you know, we would have seen what we've seen. Uh, Josh, we have you for a few more minutes here. Yeah. Just, just quickly, if I can. Um, I know some some people met on Thursday, some academics and even some uh, investigative journalists uh, at, I believe, SFU. Uh, were you involved in that at all? I think there was some misunderstanding on that. There was a, there was a uh, post online about some meeting that was taking place on Thursday. I mm-hmm. I have no okay. awareness of this. Okay. Uh, I expect that I would have 
had some okay. awareness of it had it actually occurred. Okay. Um, so I think that that was a mistake. There was a, there was a session that occurred in March, I believe. Okay. And uh, might have, yeah. So um, what was uh, I want to get at? I guess is um, what you're recommending. Uh, attacks really yeah. um it's been recommended before and you're you're kind of echoing the same statement that's that's been out there before that you know this this is an easy not an easy solution but this is something we should do yes that's right so it's it's uh it's an idea that was put first put forward by my colleague uh, reese kesselman at the school of public policy at sfu um there are variants of it um there's the proposal from the Souter school of business and it's been signed by about 40 other economists um, by the way I think that that should um, kind of uh, put to rest some of the, the worries that some people have uh, in the provincial government that, you know, I'm not an expert, so, so who am I? Uh, you know, you have 40 other economics professors in the local uh, region that uh, endorse something like this. So I think that there's a fair mm-hmm. sense that, you know, foreign money is having a, a big role and that we need to do something about it. Um, even Benjamin Tal, the, the chief economist from the CIBC Bank, um, came out in support of something like this, uh, uh, you know, a couple days ago, I think, or, or a day ago. Uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a fair bit of support for this. If you want me to explain it, I can, I can do that. But um, the, the basic idea is that you have a progressive property surtax, and it's deductible against income tax paid. And so that uh, essentially means that if you aren't doing business here or you aren't earning labor income here, you will be targeted by the tax. Uh, otherwise, it's a wash for... Can you give us a few minutes? Yes, sure. We have to take a break. I uh, want to talk a little bit about a paper that you wrote back in January, this whole idea that sitting on a mountain of cash called equity might be a ruse. Yes. Uh, Josh Gordon is with us. He's an assistant professor at the School of Public Policy at SFU. We'll take a quick break and be right back on Vancouver Real Estate Today from News Talk 980 CKNW. Our guest is Josh Gordon. He's an assistant professor at the School of Public Policy at Simon Fraser University. Before the break, we were talking about a paper he published independently on uh, the foreign money that is coming into this area. One of the things, uh, Josh, that I wanted to ask you about that caught my eye was an article that I read in the Globe and Mail uh, back in January where you wrote about the crisis in housing affordability and you, I think the, the word you may have used was it's a misunderstanding to think that this problem is limited to first-time buyers and that the idea that established homeowners are sitting on a mountain of cash that they call equity may just simply be a ruse. Yes, yes. Before, before I get to that, I just want to circle back to two quick things here. Um, first, um, the issue about whether this was foreseeable. Um, I just wanted to make clear that I don't think this was foreseeable at the start of the program, but we have seen the effects of this for some time, and so governments should have acted on this a lot sooner. And then the second thing is that there's a lot of frustration about this, and that frustration should be directed squarely at governments, and that is where the anger and frustration should be directed, and that alone. Well, the government, the government's uh, filling up their treasury right now with a lot of money due to the situation that we're in right now. Absolutely. So uh, I understand why they're, they're, they're um, in some ways, in, in, in a cynical way, I understand why they're, they're um, resistant or hesitant to, to, to tackle the issue. But uh, yes, uh, they, they still nevertheless should be doing it because there's a whole range of negative effects that gr- greatly outweigh the benefits that are accruing to them um, directly. But to your point, yes, absolutely. Um, 
that article was kind of arguing that home equity gains are, are largely illusory um, because when your house value goes up, um, so do the values of the houses all around you. And so if you want to, to cash out, essentially what you need to do is you either need to downsize, and even there you don't usually get huge gains because condos and other things and townhouses and so on have gone up too, um, or you need to move cities. And uh, moving cities is obviously uh, you know, not a uh, pleasant prospect for a lot of people because their families, their friends, their jobs, careers, etc., all of that is in the city where they live, and they don't want to necessarily move away from that, understandably. And so uh, there's been a couple of articles, in fact, in the Globe recently that are essentially making this point again, um, which is that you know a house can kind of become a prison if you, if you feel tied to it in, in home equity terms, but also just that you know, your sense of a gain is, is quite limited because ultimately if you want to stay in the city where you reside, um, you, know, you could sell your house and then buy another one, but then you have to pay all the realtor fees, uh, the land transfer tax, all that different stuff, and what have you really gained? And so, you know, I mean, most people can, can relate to this. Uh, that's part of the reason they're not kind of all, everyone's cashing out and, and going on vacations. Are we in a bubble? Uh, it depends how you define bubble, uh, but yes. Uh, 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 most definitions of bubble would get you to this. Um, Essentially, bubble is um, prices that are disconnected from, from fundamentals. And yes, I do think that that's the case. Is it unsustainable? Yes, I also think it's unsustainable, uh, largely because, uh, well, uh, of a couple of things, but largely because it's drawing people into levels of debt that they can't sustain over the long term. And all it will take is a small economic shock, either a rise in interest rates or unemployment or something like that, and you could put the market into turmoil or you might have a shock that happens internationally, perhaps in China, and there's, there's signs that that may happen soon. Uh, the Economist had, a, had an issue about that this week, um, so people should go read that. That's very interesting. Um, so those types of things make it uh, such, in my mind, that we are in an unsustainable situation, and clearly prices of houses are detached or divorced from incomes in the local market. There's a real disconnect between uh, reality and the cost of housing right now. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Yep. Thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning. It's uh, appreciated. We appreciate your insight and hope that we'll be able to call on you again as you uh, look at these types of things. This is not necessarily your housing is not really your thing, is it? No, but like everyone uh, these days, it's uh, it's a hot topic, and there was a bunch of claims that were being made that that didn't seem to match up to what we were seeing in my mind, and so I went off and I looked at the data, I crunched the data, and uh, I'm happy to have people engage with it, but I think it shows a fairly clear story. Thank you very much. Josh Gordon, Assistant Professor at the School of Public Policy at Simon Fraser University. Todd Talbot from Love It or List at Vancouver, next on Vancouver Real Estate Today from News Talk 980 CKNW. Well, we're back. Well, we're back with uh, Todd Talbot to bring some of his perspective on real estate in Vancouver. Todd, of course, is the the better half. He keeps insisting, uh, love it or list it, Vancouver. You're going to get me in trouble, Ian. I, I want to start by, I, I have to ask you this. Oh, thanks for being here again, by the way. It's, thanks for having it's, me. It's great to see you. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you, too. It's always uh, nice to have you here. We had our crack research team look into your past. Oh, great. And uh, your website says that uh, you were born and raised in Vancouver, but you moved around a lot. 
I did as a kid. Yes. And did, is that maybe where you struck your interest in real estate? Um, I, I think a little bit. You know, my parents, we moved to Victoria, a couple different places there. Then they we commuted back and forth to Salt Spring Island. They built a beautiful log post and beam home nice, there that overlooked nice. the water. I was young. I built a tree fort at the same time. <laughs> you know, nice. like yeah. my mom was pregnant on the roof. The two of us were you know, putting the uh, cedar shakes on the roof. So I was very much ingrained in that uh, early on. And, you know, my whole family loves houses and design and and uh you're a handy guy too aren't you you like to to, to get hands on yeah any job that's not done at my house is because i'm not doing it we got to talk about some real estate here. okay and, let's do it and one of the, the biggest questions that seems to come up all the time is how do real estate commissions work and and more importantly perhaps because some are higher and some are lower mm-hmm. are they negotiable so you said this conversation comes up a lot I'd actually disagree with you. I'd say that this conversation doesn't come up enough. Ah. I think that there's a lot of mystery around commission, and people are scared to talk about it. Um, The fact is, is that commission is set and is negotiable. Commission is set by an individual realtor and is negotiable. That's the bottom line. And it is based on their business model. It's based on the services that they offer. And the way that I like to analyze commission and explain it to people is that commission should be evaluated by the value that they get in return like anything but that doesn't happen no no if you look at the model of commissions today yes let's say if we have a working model of seven percent on the first hundred thousand yes two and a half on the remainder yes houses are selling for three four we're, we're told that four million is going to be the norm very soon Right. And a real estate agent works for about four to six hours on that property. They're making way too much money. And that's why I would argue maybe you should be negotiating. Absolutely. But that goes back to my point. Your commission is negotiable. And you need to have that conversation with whoever you're hiring to make that transaction. And I've been, you know, I've been in, a, in an agent-client um, relationship. It's not just around real estate. It can be as an actor. Sure. You know, there are mm-hmm. definitely circumstances where you need to identify. Now, you might have a relationship with a with an agent and it might be a one-off situation. They might sell that property in a week and mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. The economics of that relationship might be out of whack. Now, there's other um examples where you might be in a long-term relationship with somebody who's going to be around to guide you um, for multiple transactions over multiple years. And you might be using that service uh, when they're not buying. There are certain yeah. circumstances, not, not, not to defend commissions, but there are certain circumstances where, let's say as a buyer, you're out there and you're working for 20 weeks and then no one buys anything. But here's to your point about not asking, okay? Now I sound like I'm backpedaling. But discount brokerages are shunned upon because people feel, well, I'm not going to get what, if I don't pay the big dollars, yep. then I, I won't get the service. I won't, my home won't sell. Yep. When really, perhaps the listed price is the most or the biggest factor in whether the house sells or not. It can be. I, I think those properties, um, well, let me answer it two ways. Number one, I would say that there's a lot of stigma attached to different formulas of commission structure. And- Let's be clear. People can sell their house their, themselves for sale by owner. There's, there's no issue with that. Yeah, it's absolutely There's no issue okay. with that. Get a lawyer and make sure you're doing it properly. Right. But there's no issue with that. And you can scale all the way up. 
there, there's, there's no limit. I could really. tell you a good reason not to. What, well, sell your house by yourself? Yeah. One, you eliminate the emotion if you have a third party. Right. And, and the other third is that third party is going to be a better negotiator on your house than right. you are. See, this is the way that I think about it personally. And I, even though I'm licensed, I use a realtor. I always have. I've never sold anything by myself that, that I've owned. I've never bought anything by right. myself. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I do that is I believe that with somebody negotiating for me, and if that person can either save me the equivalent or more than their commission, then that's total value. Mm-hmm. And conversely, when you're buying, if, you know, if they can negotiate a better price. So you know, it does boil down to value. And you need to be able to um, have that conversation up front. You need to be able to put all the cards on the table. And a homeowner or a buyer needs to be able to evaluate and see if they think that there's value there. So in yeah, uh, in Ontario, we uh, before I left, there was a site that was just created called FeeDuck. So what this does, it's basically it's called the Uber of of, of this idea anyway. Right. So basically, you go, you post your listing, you post what price you want, and you get realtors to go onto this site and realtors bid for your listing with their commission price. So you right. say you want to give a, you want two and a half percent. You post that on, some realtors will go at two point three seven or something. And, right. And so this this idea of a uh, um, a website that's uh, been created to kind of lower commission fees is right. uh, FeeDuck is the name of this website. Um, ha- have you heard of anything like that out here? And and are you familiar with it? I'm I'm familiar with FeeDuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, someone shared that with me uh, a few months ago. Um, you know, my my personal opinion about that is, I would ask myself, do I want to hire somebody that I'm entrusting a multi million dollar transaction to somebody who's willing? Uh, you know, purely on the basis of their negotiating the fee down. We gotta we gotta wrap it up. We gotta wrap it up. We're just we're just getting to the core of this. <laughs> Takeaway message is that real estate commissions are negotiable. Absolutely. Ask the questions before you sign the documents. Absolutely, and get it in writing. Todd Talbot from Love It or List It Vancouver is our regular guest on Vancouver Real Estate Today. My name is Ian Power here with John Meyer. And we'll be back in just a moment on News Talk 980 CKNW. John, a renovated SRO building in Strathcona uh, near Chinatown in Vancouver raised some eyebrows for its uh, advertising pricey, trendy rooms. And and this has um, housing advocates pretty upset. Is this a trend that we might start to see? I, it's one that uh, I know our newsroom has a, has an interest in, in watching, and I know Simon Little out of our newsroom has been following this story, and, and uh, he spoke with Gene Swanson from the Carnegie Community Action Project, who uh, says, really, uh, Ian, this, this is highlighting a growing problem. So it shows two things. One, the rent supplements aren't adequate to solve the housing problem, and two, that the city's housing agreement policy is not helping low-income people. So yeah, this this renovated single room occupancy is what SRO stands for. If if you're not familiar, and uh, this in Strathcona, it's raising eyebrows as you mentioned, Ian, for for housing advocates like Gene. Uh, it's because only three of its protected suites went to low income people. So the city says two units at the address at 406 Union were filed at the agreed welfare rate, which is three hundred and seventy five dollars a month. And keep in mind, uh, these rooms don't even have a bathroom. You mm-hmm. might have a hot plate. Uh, you certainly 
certainly don't have a shower or anything. It's just it's it's a small room. It's a bed and a drawer. Yeah, but the, the city admits only one of six units meant for people on housing subsidies were filled by them. So it turns out uh, even with the supplement, no one could afford the nine hundred dollar rent. So for nine hundred dollars, would you pay that? For an SRO, if, if that was your only option, um, you know, some people don't have options and, and some people are suggesting that this is happening because they want to, you know, get these renters out of the building. And, and in some cases, they're, they're paying tenants, here's $2,500, you know, uh, we'll, we'll basically see you later. Yeah. And, and people are, you know, if you make little money or you have no money and all of a sudden you're given a check of $2,500, oh, I'll leave this place and find somewhere else. Well, you know, those options are... Diminishing. We talked about this a bit earlier with our guest Josh Gordon, uh, what I would call a renoviction. Uh, that's yeah, that's kind of the, the term that's been about. bantied about. Uh, not a new phenomenon. And as we talked with uh, Mr. Gordon, we mentioned that this trend that we're seeing today, although he said it wasn't predictable at the time, really did begin in the 1980s when, and we're, I know we're celebrating Expo 86 now, but uh, there was a lot of people, myself included, by the way, I must have been renovicted out of three or four different apartment buildings during the 1980s and that lead up to Expo for similar reasons. Uh, you know, moving in, uh, doing small upgrades or any kind of upgrades, bringing people in at a much higher level of rent. And $900 a month, I'm wondering, because I haven't been a renter for a while, I don't even know what you can get for $900 a month these days. Well, we, we there's a, a few people you can follow on social media that kind of track these these places and uh, you know, there's stuff as small as under 400 square feet for, for $900 a month. Um, cool. You know, <laughs> I pay 1500 right now uh, for, um, what am I at? Just around five. 500 square feet? Yeah, just, just over. Yeah. Is that one room or is that a one bedroom? That's a, yeah, it's a one bedroom yeah, apartment. Obviously, you haven't had me over. <laughs> no, I can't have anybody do, do over. you not have a fridge but, I mean, with we, a beer in it? Or? <laughs> we we uh, Obviously, uh, it, it works for us because we don't have a family, but... Um, you know, 1500 for 500 square feet Yeah, over, yeah. just under six. So, but okay. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. even still, but that, that's, that's, that's very common. That's enormous. Um, and, but, but $900 for an SRO and yes, they might look nice because they've been updated, but, uh, you know, is this going to become the new norm? If so, that, that's a scary idea. And it's also scary for the people that it should be going to. Let's not forget that, you know, the welfare rate is $375 a month that, uh, that, this specific building was supposed to be filled at. So yeah, this whole idea and concept of gentrification. Uh, this is where the argument comes that this type of thing drives people away. And when you drive them away, where are they going? And they just they end up going to somewhere else. They become another area's issue, and uh, it's concerning. So uh, thank you for that, John. Uh, we also want to thank Matt Highland and Amila Bamji for. Our uh, production today for John Meyer, my name is Ian Power. Thank you for sharing your time with Vancouver Real Estate today. Stay with us. Charmaine De Silva is next with CKNW Weekend from News Talk 980 CKNW.